that's, that's not that exciting. Oh, we're good. Okay, good. That's better. Um, this morning, we're going to continue uh, a series that James started a couple of weeks ago through the Psalms. Um, we're going to look at another one of these beautiful Psalms that are sort of grouped together, um, Psalm 120 to 134, with this uh, phrase, a song of ascent. And we're going to look at Psalm 130 this morning. But before I read, there's, there's eight verses in the Psalm, but before I read them, I just want to sort of talk a bit around them um, by way of kind of an introduction. Because this particular psalm has had a huge impact through church history. Um, and this psalm was a favourite for many of the Protestant um, Reformation guys and, and many church leaders throughout church history. This psalm was a favourite of Martin Luther, a favourite of John Calvin. This was a favourite of Augustine. And most notably is the impact it had on John Wesley. Now, I don't know what your church history knowledge is like this morning. Maybe you haven't done church history in Bible college or something. Um, so maybe these names don't actually mean anything to you. But let me speak a little bit about these people. So Augustine, he was a, a church father. He was a church leader um, around the 3rd and 4th century. He was considered one of the theological forebearers of the Reformation because of his teaching on salvation and, and divine grace. But what he was most famous for was his work on the Psalms. He spent 30 years preaching and teaching on the Psalms. And he was so captivated by them, so captivated by the Psalms, that as he lay in his deathbed, he ordered that those Psalms, which are especially penitent, so, so the penitential Psalms are, are their seven Psalms that are really um, straightforward in their um, declaration of repentance and, and grace with God. And he ordered that these be copied out and, and put up on the wall, so that when he was very weak, he used to, to lie on his side so he could look at these, these and he would just read them over and over again. And he would stare and he would gaze at them. And he was known for profusely and continually weeping as he read these psalms. And Psalm 130 is one of these psalms. And John Calvin, as I said, he's, you've maybe heard Calvinism or something like that. He was around the 1500s. He's most known for his influential work called the Institutes of the Christian Religion in 1536. This is like the first systematic theological set of works um, around the Christian faith, around the time of the Reformation. It's actually widely held that his teaching so impacted the Christian faith that it actually helped to form the modern world as we know it. And this was a favourite psalm of his as well. He used it to stand against the errors of the Catholic Church and he describes Psalm 130 as one of immeasurable treasure. John Wesley, as I said, was probably the most impacted by this psalm. So John Wesley was a um, pastor, he was a minister, he was a missionary, but he was unconverted. It doesn't seem right, but he was a minister who wasn't a Christian. But he was struck on May of 1738, he went to St. Paul's Cathedral, and he was struck by a song. He was confronted in a way that he had never been confronted before. And on that afternoon, the, the choir was chanting Psalm 130. And God used this psalm to prepare the soul of John Wesley. Because it was that afternoon that he went from there to hear Martin Luther preach on the Romans. And that's when he gave his life to Jesus. That's when he was converted. But this song was sung with this verse, Lord, if you should mark our iniquities, who could stand? And he responded. He, he looked at himself. He thought to himself, well, I couldn't stand. 
I couldn't stand before God except as one guilty. And so God used this psalm in the conversion of Wesley. And if you don't know, Wesley started the Methodist church. Out of that came the holiness movement. And then from that birth, Pentecostalism. And here we are today. I, I kind of wonder if it wasn't for this moment, we might not be sitting here. So this psalm has a huge impact through church history. And there's many more stories like this. And as, as I thought about this and, and thought about the power of the Word of God, you know, the, the Word of God changes the, the hearts and minds of an individual and impacts us as individuals, but it changes the culture around us. In fact, it changes the whole world. And so my prayer this morning as we, as we dig into the psalm would be that it would also impact you so much that it would transform you from the inside out. But as I read this morning, can you consider this question, as, as Wesley did and some of these other reformers did, before God, who can stand? Let me read, Psalm 130. A song of ascent. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen for the morning, more than the watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all iniquity. Now, as you might have um, heard at the beginning, there's this phrase, a song of ascent, and, and I particularly read it out, and I, I mentioned it before. But I just want to clarify that there's nothing mystical about this, this phrase. There's nothing mystical about this word. It's simply that the pilgrims traveling from Jerusalem uh, sang these songs as they went up the hill, up to Jerusalem, up to these great festivals. They literally had to ascend. They had to travel uphill. And Jerusalem is on a hill, and no matter which direction you were coming from, you would have to travel uphill to go to Jerusalem. And so they sang these songs. They sang these songs to worship God, but also to prepare themselves for corporate worship in the temple. And they would do this pilgrimage. They would do this journey uh, a few times a year. There was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Weeks, and of course, Passover. And there's actually a number of passages in the Gospels of Jesus with his disciples traveling up to Jerusalem for these festivals. For example, in John 2, it says these words, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Of course, that passage, when he arrives, he doesn't like what he sees. He's angered by what they're doing in the temple and he throws over tables. That's a whole other message. But I like to imagine Jesus with his disciples walking up towards Jerusalem. Perhaps for the Passover, like this, this moment, or perhaps another time. And maybe he was singing this very psalm. Maybe he was singing Psalm 130 with his disciples. But there's actually a second sense of ascent. There's a tongue twister, sense of ascent in Psalm 130. Because this text of the psalm moves from the depths to the heights. It moves from the, the depths, of, from the low places in a cry for mercy to the height of God in his salvation work. And what was so amazing to the reformers, like I read before, and, and to other church people throughout history, was that this psalm is so simple. It's so straightforward in that it offers salvation by grace apart from any human merit, from nothing we've done, like James was sharing this morning. 
course, this is what captured John Wesley. This is what was so crucial to his transformation. But again, it's this question that drives us. And I'm going to keep harping on this. It, it's what drives us from the, height, uh, from the depths to the heights. Before God, who could stand? Before God, could I stand? Could you stand this morning? There's four sections to the psalm, and I'm really harping on this, this ascent thing. Because I want to move through them step by step. I want to go four steps through the psalm. The, the four steps are, well, step one, there's a great need. This is this cry for mercy in the first two verses. Then there's a great God. This is in the psalms thinking about God in verse 3 and 4. Then we get to step three. This is the great desire. This is on waiting on God in verse 5 and 6. And then there's a great expectation. This is in the, the hoping in God in verse 7 and 8. So let, let's move through this, these steps. So first we've got a great need. We're on step one. Let me read the verses. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So the first step, we're at the bottom. We're, we're in the low place. We're in the pit. We're in the depths. And it's not clear if the psalmist is talking about a physical deep place or something emotional or something spiritual. And I don't think it really matters. I, I think the point is that this is an honest cry to God. He's in a desperate situation, whatever it is, but he's honestly crying to God. He's basically saying, God, hear me, answer me, help me. So this is a, a moment of emergency. Back in 2006, I went on a mission trip. This was my, my first mission trip as a, as a young adult. And there was a group of about 24 of us, if I remember correctly. And we went over to rebuild an orphanage in Indonesia after the tsunamis over there. Um, we went to this small island off the coast of Sumatra called Nia. It's quite a mountainous island. Actually, it's, it's 800 metres at its peak, which is about 15 metres higher than that of Jerusalem. And the story is that in March of 2005, this little island was hit with an earthquake. It's actually now regarded as the second biggest earthquake in Indonesia and in the top 10 in the world. And after this earthquake came a tsunami. At least 800 people were, were reported dead and a couple of thousand were injured. Hundreds of buildings were toppled and, and thousands of people were left homeless. And so amongst all the destruction, there was this orphanage. And, and I can't remember how we, we heard about it or whatever, but there was this orphanage that was destroyed. And there were these young kids that had nowhere to go. They had literally nothing. So we took up the call to, to offer some small support where we could. But I remember talking to one of the locals at, while we were there. And he was explaining his experience during the earthquake and during the flood and how people had to ascend up the mountains to escape. Now, it was a long time ago, so the details are a little bit fuzzy, but what I do remember is he was explaining the story of during the earthquake, he found himself bear-hugging one of the columns as, as the building was swaying back and forth and there's like rubble and things falling down around him. And in that moment, while he's, he's holding onto this column, he cries out to God. And then it was only a few minutes later, after the, the earthquake kind of settled, that he found himself running for his life up the mountain because the floodwaters were coming. I don't think it was coming around his ankles or anything like that, but it was a dire situation. He was in an emergency, and it was out of the depths that he cried out to God. He said, help me, answer me. And it's out of the depths that this psalmist cries out in these verses. 
You know, I don't think he's experiencing an earthquake or a flood or anything like that. But he's faced with predicament. He's faced with location. Where is he? He's in the depths. He's in the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And maybe you hear these words this morning. And maybe immediately you resonate with this. Maybe, maybe you relate to these words. Maybe this will be your new favorite psalm as well. Maybe you're here this morning saying, yes, that's me. My life is right there. I'm in the depths. And you don't know why you're there or, or how you got in this situation or why you feel this way. Or maybe you're wrestling with the question, like, like Luther, like Wesley, how can I know God? How can I know with absolute certainty that God's favor is towards me? How can I possibly stand before God? How can a holy and perfect God look favorably upon a sinner like me? You know, when we just get a glimpse of God and His holiness, it kind of plunges us to, to the depths of, of guilt and despair so that all we're left to do is cry out for mercy. The psalmist says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And isn't it the great joy of those who know God, the, the believers in Christ, that we know God hears our cries, God hears our voice, and this leads us to step two. We're, we're, we're in the depths in step one. Now we're going to see step two, our great God. Verse three and four says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And now like John Wesley, I, I don't think the psalmist was an ungodly man. I think he had the law. I think he knew God's commands. And probably if you looked at Wesley before his conversion, you would have thought, well, he's a man of God. You would probably wouldn't have even thought of him as a sinner. Of course, he knew. But I don't think the picture is here of, of like a severity of sin or the psalmist thinking about how bad he is or, or amount of sins committed or something like that. I think the point in these words is of a holy God. The depths of our sin comes from an understanding of the holiness of God. And I think in our modern world we probably don't really understand this or at least fully appreciate it. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Saviour. It's only when we come to know the depths of our sin that we truly know the height of the Holy One. Let me read verse 3 again. If you were Lord Jamark iniquities, who could stand? And when, you, when I first read this verse, or, or when you first hear it, of course you go, well, of course he does. He's God. He knows all things. And the Bible says we're going to have to give an account. But I think what he's really saying is if, if the Lord were to tally up my sins, and he was to hold me accountable for them, I'm done. I'm done. I don't have a leg to stand on. I don't have a glimmer of hope. And so I asked the question before God, who could stand? Of course, the answer is no one. No one can stand. That's why Isaiah cries out in, the, in that wonderful vision when, it, when he sees God. He cries out in Isaiah 6.5. He says, woe to me, I cry. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, have seen the Lord Almighty. The psalmist is crying out from the depths. On the de from the depths to God, to the Holy One, in recognition of His standing. And probably one of the best pictures that I can think of, in the Old Testament at least, 
of someone crying out from the depths, someone crying out from, uh, you know, in recognition of their failings, of their shortcomings, of their standing before God, is Jonah. Jonah crying out from the depths of the sea. You know, we know the story. The word comes to Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against them because of their wickedness. Go and preach against them. But Jonah doesn't take up the call. He doesn't take up, you know, heed God's call there. He runs away. God calls him to go 500 miles east, sort of northeast. Instead, he goes 2,500 miles west. And the story goes on. He's in a boat. He's fleeing. He's in a boat. And he's asleep below deck. And this huge storm comes up. And, and they're all panicking and whatever. So they go wake up Jonah and try and work out what's going on. What's this storm all about? And they work out actually that Jonah was the cause. The cause of their predicament. The cause of their calamity. So they throw him overboard. And of course the, the, the storm ceases immediately. Everything goes calm. And when they throw Jonah overboard, of course if you know the rest of the story, it's a whale of a tale. I stole that. I, I stole that from someone else. But God sends a giant fish, a giant fish from the, the depths of the sea to swallow up Jonah. And he spends three days in the belly of a whale. I mean, if that's not a picture of in the depths, I don't know what is. But he cries out to God from the depths, from the belly of this whale. Now, let me just point something out here about Jonah. Because maybe contrary to the Sunday school presentation, maybe you've heard, or, or a kid's cartoon or something like that, Jonah is not the hero. He's not the hero of this story. At, at best, he's the anti-hero, but really, he's, he's the villain. He's the bad guy in the story. Because the reason Jesus was running away from God's call was not that he was afraid of the people of Nineveh. It wasn't that he was worried that they might do something to him or challenge him. He was running away from that because he knew something of the character of God. You see, he hated the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was this great city in Assyria, but it was a pagan nation. These were the Gentiles. These were the, the non-Jewish nations. They were the enemies of Israel. And Jonah, in the story, he's kind of the epitome of this Jewish hate towards all other nations, all other nations that weren't Jewish. And, and they, were, they kind of saw this as worship to God. They thought that was honoring God. There was this generational hatred towards Nineveh. And so the reason he ran away from God was that he knew that if he preached to this nation, if he did as God called him, as God demanded, they probably would have responded. And they probably would have responded in repentance. And his hatred was so great that he feared God would relent. God would show them mercy. God would give them salvation, give them forgiveness. And as the story goes, that's exactly what God did. Because there actually is a hero in the story. It's definitely not Jonah. He's the worst of the missionaries. But the hero is God. The story goes on. In Jonah 3.10, it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them destruction as he had threatened. He, he gave them mercy. He showed them forgiveness. And Jonah was distressed by this. this. This was not what he wanted because he knew God. He knew the character of God. He says in Jonah 4.2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. As the psalmist says it in our text this morning, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And it is with us. We're, we're in a great need. We're in the depths because of our sin. But we also have a great God. A God who offers forgiveness to, to all of us who cry out to him. And I ask the question, and I keep going back to this question, before God, who should stand? Of course, none of us can stand. We looked at that already. But God has made a way. God has sent his son. You know, by our own merit, our own, our own goodness, our own strength, whatever, none of us can come to God. None of us could stand before him. But fortunately, we don't have to rely on our own strength, our own goodness, our own merit. We have a great God. And it's through Jesus' sacrifice, through his death on the cross, we have forgiveness through sin, uh, from sin. We fear God because we know that he has every reason to condemn us, but he does not. Every reason to, but he doesn't. As James read this morning from Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. You know, Jonah called out from the depths, the depths of, uh, in the belly of the whale, and he was rescued from that great fish, he, and he was spat onto the seashore. The people of Nineveh, they, they repented from their wickedness, and God showed them mercy. And, and the Bible says God is a gracious God. God is abandoning in love. God is there. Uh, with God, there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And I could probably end the message there. That, that's, that's a good high note, isn't it? But the psalmist goes on. There's, there's a bit more to this story. Because he knows that there's a great God. He knows that it's to him he's crying out, but he's still in the depths. He's still in the depths. There's got to be another step. So we go to step three. There's this great desire. He says in verse five and six, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. The psalmist's desire is towards God. He's waiting upon God in the depths. And I think that's a picture for us. We too must wait. And I spent a bit of time trying to, to understand this waiting on God as, as I was preparing this. You know, what does it mean to wait on God? What does it actually look like to wait on God? And it was pointed out to me that don't we just wait on God like a child waits for something? You know, before we went up to Mackay for its dream conference, um, I told my little daughter, my, my three-year-old girl, I said to her, we're going on a holiday. You know, it was probably seven to ten days before we left. And so every night after that, it was, is it holidays tomorrow? Is it one more sleep to holidays? Even a couple of times, uh, I woke her up in the morning and she said, oh, is it time to go? Is it holidays today? That's the first thing she said. Not, is, not good morning, Dad. Is it time for holidays? And then even as we're driving up to Mackay, every time we stopped, is this for holidays? Are we there? She didn't say, are we there yet? But it was along those lines. You see, her desire was to go on holiday. Her desire was to do all those fun things. There was a pool there. She knew she was going to see people. She was going to do the fun things. And she knew without a doubt that we were going to go. She knew we were going on this holiday. Dad had said, we're going to go. But she's three. She has no concept of time. And I would answer her, please. No, you know, it's seven more sleeps or it's five more sleeps or whatever it is. But she kept asking. And I think that's how we wait. We, we cry out to God from the depths. But we don't just cry out once and, and tick. I've done that prayer. 
our hope in God is both a certainty, we, we know it's going to happen, but it's also an expectancy. We wait knowing with absolute assurance, no matter the depths that we're in, we know God hears our cry, we know that He will show mercy, we know that He bestows on us His love and forgiveness, as the psalmist says, but we also wait with anticipation, coming to God again and again and again, crying out for help. I think this is how we wait. As my daughter trusted that we were going to go on this holiday, we trust in God's promises, we trust in the Word of God. As the psalmist said, in His Word I hope. But as she kept asking, I think we keep coming and seeking God. We keep crying out to Him for help. We keep eagerly waiting. This takes us to step four. We're we're at the, the pinnacle now. This is the step four, great expectation. Let me read the verses. Verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem all Israel from all his iniquities. There is forgiveness. It's impossible to go beyond the mercy of God. But clearly, as James said this morning, forgiveness comes with great cost. The, the psalmist knew this because forgiveness doesn't come without sacrifice and great sacrifice. The Jewish people had these special festivals where they, like Passover, and they sang these songs like Psalm 130 as they went up there. But they went to go and remember how God had rescued them. It's for this reason they went to Jerusalem, to remember the sacrifices made, the shedding of blood, the offering up in faith. The sacrifices that they had made and that had been accepted by God, which all pointed forward to that ultimate sacrifice that we have in Jesus. So what is the basis then that we can come before God? It's not from something within. It can't be something internal. It's got to be something external. It's not by something that I've done, but something done for me. By the ultimate sacrifice and the sending of of God's Son, offered up once and for all. It's why in 2 Corinthians that that Paul gives this this wonderful picture uh, in chapter 5, and I won't read the whole thing, but he gives this wonderful message that through Jesus, we've been reconciled before God. And that God is actually reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their sins against them, not counting the people's sins against them. So this morning, as, as we ascend with the psalmist out of the depths to the high place, we know that we are the redeemed of God. We join with these great church leaders through church history, like Wesley and, and some of these others, and we, continue, we come to realize that before God, we cannot stand except as guilty. But we do stand before God because of Christ's work. As Paul states at the end of that chapter, in, in verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If I could ask the musicians to, to come up. So where does this leave us this morning? This, this beautiful psalm, but where does it leave us? I think there's kind of three points that we need to, to apply to our lives. The first one is prayer. We, we need to pray. We need to join with the psalmist and cry out to God. We need to cry out to God from the depths. And, and whatever the depths are in your situation, if you hear these words in the psalm and you relate, you resonate with these, these words, you think that that's your life, that's where you are, you think, oh, I'm here right now, and you can't fully explain why you're in that place or 
or you know what the the situation around you, why it's happening, or why you feel this way, or you're asking that question of your standing before God. You're wondering, how could I ever be put right with God? Cal Spurgeon, and I spoke to him before, he says this, and it's a bit of an old school um, way to write it, but I think it's good. He says, it matters little where we are if we can pray, but prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places. Deep places beget deep devotion. So this morning, whether you're in a good place right now or you're in the depths, cry out to God. Cry out to Him for mercy. Because you know that he is attentive to your cries. We must pray. The second thing is, wait. We must wait on God. We must acknowledge our need of him and wait in this eager expectation. This is probably the the most difficult thing to do. Because when we pray and when we come to God, more often we want God to just um, pull us out of the depths immediately. It's kind of like Peter crying out to Jesus when he saw Jesus walking on the water and he stepped out of the boat and started walking and then he doubted and he started to sink he was going into the depths and he cried out to Jesus and it says immediately Jesus reached out his hand and picked him up but it doesn't always work like that does it I think sometimes we need to slow down we need to wait wait with that expectation like I said keep asking keep coming but to stop to, to quiet ourselves to wait on God and why do we wait we know the promises of God we know the word of God we know the word that became flesh and dwelt among us we know that with God there is forgiveness heaven and earth it says will pass away but the word of God will never pass away and all the promises of God find a yes and amen so we seek God we seek him in prayer knowing his goodness towards us even in the depths thus we wait on him and the third thing is hope the end of that psalm ends with hope we must live in hope we must live with this complete assurance in the salvation that comes from god to those who repent from their sins and turn to him there's no contradiction between the joy of assurance in knowing that your sins are forgiven and the tears of penitence that flow in recognition that you've been a sinner you know god is the one who judges your sins but as james said this morning he's also the one who redeems you from them our hope can be in nothing else, nothing in ourselves, nothing in this world. We cannot look inwards at our own strength to, to try and bring us out of these depths. We must look up to God. We must put our hope fully in Him. Psalm 121, first two verses, says like this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let me pray this morning. Lord God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for this beautiful psalm. I thank you for the picture of um, the the depths and and the heights. I thank you, God, that you hear our cries for mercy. I thank you that you know us. I thank you that with you there is forgiveness. You know that we can't stand before you, so you made a way. Thank you that with you there is forgiveness. There is hope. Help us to wait on you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to look to you, to look up. And God, I just pray as we 
we've gone through the psalm this morning, that you'd be touching hearts and minds this morning. That those that are in the depths, God, that they would cry out to you. And God, I just pray that you would hear their cries. You would hear their cries for mercy. You would hear their call for help. And you would answer them. And we thank you, God, that you do answer them. That you've promised in your word. And your word never fails. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.